This is Top of Mind. I'm Julie Rose. Thanks for tuning in. Today's episode has been carefully curated from the Top of Mind archive, and there's a lot to choose from. We've been going in-depth with guests on the air every weekday since 2015, searching for new perspectives and ideas. I hope what you hear today makes you think about your world a little differently and sparks satisfying new conversations with the people in your life. Let's dive in. 30 years ago, a South African honeybee somehow made perfect clones of herself that made perfect clones of themselves on and on hundreds of millions of times. That one honeybee created her own clone army that is now responsible for collapsing thousands of bee colonies in South Africa every year. Behavioral geneticist Ben Oldroyd led the research team that figured out the cloning secret of the South African Cape honeybee. Oldroyd is a professor at the University of Sydney in Australia. He's with me now. Welcome, Professor Oldroyd. Hi, Julie. Good to talk to you. This bee that cloned herself, was she a queen bee? I thought only queen bees laid eggs. No, she was a worker bee. Um, The queen bees of this uh, subspecies in South Africa actually can't do this trick. It's only the workers that can do it. It's kind of curious. Yeah. So there's one individual bee um, was taken up to the northern part of South Africa by a beekeeper. And somehow she got out and went into the local population and started laying eggs. And then the local bees really liked these eggs and reared them very uh, nicely and made them bigger than a normal worker bee. And that produced the next generation, and so on and so forth. And in each of her succeeding, each of the succeeding generations also had the ability to do this trick to, to um, re, to clone themselves. Yes, there's a gene which um, causes this, or, or gives them the ability to uh, do this cloning trick. We call it the thalitic gene, and um, this um, gene makes the, the chromosomes. Uh, well, if we think about an egg. It's got four cells in it, four nuclei, which came from the mother. And then two of them get to back together as if one was a sperm and one was an egg. So it sort of self-fertilizes itself within the egg. No need for a sperm. It just fertilizes itself. Honeybees, do they typically reproduce without a mate asexually like this? No, this is um, confined almost exclusively to this little subspecies in the southern part of South Africa. Every other bee in the world, um, if a worker bee lays an egg, it becomes a male. So it is a kind of cloning, but a, a female worker produces a male offspring. And when queens produce females, every egg must be fertilized. Okay. So it's a specific thing confined to workers in this subspecies in South Africa. I should add, though, that there are some ants that can do this trick. And so it's <laughs> only one bee, but several ants. <laughs> huh. Do we have any idea how or why this one particular female worker bee would have all of a sudden started being able to do this trick of cloning herself back in the 90s? Well, um, th- this population in the southern part of South Africa, all the workers have the potential to do it. And they do do it sometimes. So um, in just normal colonies in this um, area of South Africa, if uh, the queen dies, many of the workers will start to lay eggs and they will eventually produce a queen out of those eggs. And one of the really exciting things that we found out is that um, in the southern part of South Africa, not the northern part, which we'll come to, the uh, workers will sometimes fly out of their own colony into another colony and try and parasitize it with their eggs by laying them in a queen cell. So this is like um, a, you know, a, a maligned worker in some factory in, <laughs> in Sydney somewhere becoming the queen of Australia or the queen of England hmm. um, by being promoted to being a queen. So it's genetically identical The worker and the subsequent queen are identical because it's a clone, Um, but it changes the cast, or as we call it, from the worker cast to the queen cast. So every worker from the sexual population in the southern part of South Africa are able to do this. It's just this one bee that was taken by a beekeeper up to another subspecies area in the northern part of South Africa that started doing the parasitism that started this 
massive population all derived from one worker. Mm. But the, they can still do it, um, or all of them can do it, we think, um, in the southern part of South Africa, but they usually don't. Well, why is so, that I then? Mean, let's let's think think through for us, like on maybe on an evolutionary perspective. Like, why would if you have a, a species of bees, a subspecies of bees, in which the workers have the ability to clone themselves, it seems like a pretty easy and straightforward way to to you know ensure your sur- <laughs> ensure your survival. Why would they not all be making their own clone babies all the time in their hives? So when, when they're in um, a normal hive with a queen that, that's um, dominating the workers, then there's really not much incentive to do it. It's, it's just as useful to rear assi- uh, help rear sisters than to have their own offspring. It's only when um, the queen dies, then the workers become much more individualistic and mm. selfish. And at that stage, it really is helpful to clone themselves. So when you're in a normal colony with the queen's hunky-dory, that's all fine. There's no, there's no evolutionary incentive, um, particular evolutionary incentive to do it. It's only when the colony loses its queen. However, when you, you, you take this uh, subspecies out of its normal milieu and take it up to the northern part of South Africa, um, as this one bee did, then it can get into a colony, start laying some eggs, which produces workers, and that just became a mess because mm. the normal bees have no resistance to these uh, to these clones. They they don't um, they will they're attracted to them. They feed them. They nurture them, and sow the seeds of their own destruction. Mm. So I like so- to think of this as like a social cancer. It's it's a thing that spreads between colonies. And, and causes um, and causes eventually the death of the colony. So everything, this clone army would never have become a problem in the north of South Africa had this one worker bee not been transplanted by a, a beekeeper. Uh, right. Okay. Okay. Completely good. correct. So so and we know the uh, the the event that happened. Several um, dozens of colonies were taken by a beekeeper up to the northern part of South Africa to try and get some honey off a special plant up there, actually the aloe plant that, mm. you know, that makes aloe vera. And um, it, it, uh, it probably many workers got out and started um, infiltrating the, the local bee population, but only one of them has come to be the dominant clone that um, has persisted for these um, 30-something years. And you know that because you've tested... You've tested the DNA of these clone bees and seen that right. they're all so identical. We went, around and, we went around and sampled them, and yes, they're all identical. Wow. And you can actually trace back the, the, the genotype of the original worker. You can like re- reinvent what she was by looking at um, uh, the genotype of several of these. Hmm. We looked at 20 or 30 of them. Was she, was she special them. in any way? Not that we know of. Huh. Not that we know of. She, it was just luck. It was I a mean, quirk. Was, it, yeah, it's probably just luck that that one came to dominate. I think that just about any bee from the South could start such a clone, but only one did, if that makes sense. And, and we didn't, and, and, and did we not know, I, I, when I say we, I mean, I guess like people who know these kinds of things, did expert scientists not know that this particular subspecies, subspecies of the South African Cape honeybee was capable of cloning itself? Yes, everybody knew that, but nobody thought it was a problem. Mm. Actually, people thought it was a good thing because if a colony lost its queen, it could make a new queen. Yeah, They didn't realize that it caused all this. So you've got a normally harmonious society um, because everybody's sort of in the same boat. It's like the cells of a human. They're all identical, so they don't fight each other. It's just when you get a, a mutation that creates a cancer, then one group of cells, one population of cells, tries to take over the, the, the other ones and, and successfully does so. And how is it that, that they take over? Walk me through that process. Uh, one of these clone bees shows up in, in a colony that's not of its own subspecies. And right. it gets busy laying some eggs. And then what happens? Okay, so the, the, the local bees, the host colony, if you like, um, responds to the pheromones that are produced by the larva. And um, they're much more attractive than the larva of their own subspecies, like the one in their hive. So they tend to give extra food to the clone larvae. 
So that might start with maybe five or six eggs and five or six larvae and they get lavishly fed. And those clone workers come out, they, they hatch, and um, they are much more able to lay eggs. So they have, uh, they're bigger and they have a, a stronger ability to lay eggs. So they do lay eggs and then the host workers think, oh, these are nice, we'll feed those larvae and so on and so forth. So the population of the clone grows exponentially. They never do any work. They don't forage, they don't do anything. They don't contribute at eggs. all. They just they, they just hang out. At all. They just lay eggs and hang oh. out and party on, I suppose. <laughs> and and then eventually the colony collapses because the, the hosts can't feed them anymore. And uh, there's, there's no one left doing any work. Oh. So at that point when the colony collapses, these workers spread into other colonies and, and the process continues. Wow. So you can you can actually when you open the hives, you can see these little all these big um, black bees um, running around amongst the yellow ones, which are the color of the local subspecies up in the north part of South Africa. And it, it's, it's, it's remarkable. You see these big fat things walking around not doing anything. And, and the, the local bees don't seem bothered at all by it. Like they don't have, they don't have a, a, you know, an alert response or a defensive response like they might normally. They, the only time when they do have a defensive response is right at the beginning of the process. They um, try to stop the adult clones from getting in. But once they are rearing them in their own hive, they're completely defenseless. Yeah. It, it, the analogy with cancer is really quite strong and huh. striking. Once it gets going, there's m not much you can do. Yeah, it just cast a spell, and almost like a cloaking spell, like a mechanism. You know, you can't that they don't they don't realize that they've been taken over as they're That's right. as they're facilitating yeah. it by feeding these clones, and exactly. and the consequence then is that the whole colony collapses and. And and so this is um, this has become a widespread problem in the north of South Africa. Yeah, quite so. Um, and beekeepers try to isolate the infected colonies and uh, burn them, or or just put them in a in a corner and and let them die out. And they have to replenish their colonies um, by putting empty boxes out in the bush and collecting wild swarms. That's sort of what the South African honey industry has evolved to in the north. It's based on wild bees. Is there a way to selectively exterminate this clone army? <laughs> um, I don't think so. I, I, it's, it's one of those things which um, doesn't... It, it seems like it will persist. There's, <sighs> there's no defense against it. I mean, you'd either have to completely eliminate the industry and start again. That, that would work. There is one example, actually, um, where... A similar clone was introduced into Brazil, again from South Africa, um, back in the 60s, I believe. And it started, but it petered out. So this, this one is unique in that it's kept going for so long. Now, Professor Oldroyd, um, I thought that asexual rep uh, reproduction, um, and especially this cloning method, would... Uh, that's not the most effective way to perpetuate your survival typically because you need diversity in your genome. Otherwise, if all of your clones are susceptible to this one particular flu virus, say if you're a human, you know, then you're all going to get equally sick and, you know, you're going to have a harder time surviving if you're all identical and don't have the diversity to kind of deal with all the things that the world can throw at you. So how does, how does understanding that these clones are like, you know, so successful what what does that tell us about the nature of i guess reproduction and survival in the natural world um well you've got to remember that they're a parasite so they don't have to be particularly good you know if, you, if you're a parasite you can um, get away with uh not all your eggs hatching because you're just feeding off another uh, mm. of, of your host species it's more likely to occur in a parasitic species as asexuality mm. um, because, as you say, um, species which have to um, survive and compete with each other, a bit of variation is very helpful. So you call these clone bees paras parasites, um, but in their natural state, their, their um, original state, in their own colony of all of this particular subspecies of bee, 
it functions because is that right? It, it functions. Yeah, it, we understand why that is the case, and it all comes back to those larval pheromones. It's because the 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 cape bees don't respond to the pheromones uh, of the larvae as strongly as the um, the subspecies from the north of South Africa. So they don't give the larvae extra food. They don't. Um, uh, mollycoddle them and, and look after them and sort of treat them like a, a, a bunch of queens. And therefore, the, the workers grow up at normal size and they don't um, start behaving badly. And, and the balance is maintained. And if the queen dies... And the balance is maintained quite. And if the queen dies, they'll create a new queen, but it won't turn into, you know, Lord well, of the Flies. Happens, so um, the queen dies shall we say, or beekeeper kills it or something goes wrong. The workers start to lay eggs. These produce females. That goes on for several generations. They, they, will, they will produce, there will be a colony without a queen, workers laying eggs to produce more workers. And then at some point, they just select one and raise it as a queen. And it's all really quite harmonious. It's just that, uh, well, actually, there's a big fight just when it starts and you get the, just when you take the queen away, the workers start fighting to decide which ones are going to lay eggs. But until that, after that's happened, it, it all gets quite harmonious. I've had queenless colonies living for months um, in the southern part of South Africa. Hmm. And then one day you just go in there and there's a queen. Hmm. They've raised a queen from, a, from, a, from the egg of a worker. Are all of the bees of this subspecies now clones of that one be from the 1990s? Uh, in the north, yes. As far mm. as I know, they're all clones of the one that came from 1990. But in the southern part of South Africa, they, they are sexual. The queens mate and they lay eggs, which are sexually produced. I see. They're used for pollination and honey production, and they're, they're completely normal. Well, you, you wouldn't know they were abnormal when you first look at them. Hmm. What's, what's the lesson here? Why is this an important under, thing to understand? Well, there's, there's so many things which are interesting about it. I mean, I think it's just interesting in itself that nature's so uh, weird and wonderful. Hmm. Um, it, it's interesting because you've got a society, you know, bee societies are generally held up to be the, the, the paragons of cooperation and, and uh, uh, work of fealty to the queen and all that sort of thing. But and it's actually quite unstable and you just need one little thing to change and these societies become unstable. And we actually know that the, the, the basis of this change is the single gene which um, causes the uh, eggs to self-fertilize. And we know that that gene is present 100% in the southern population and absent everywhere else in the world. And whilst the two populations stay apart, it's all fine, but then humans somehow um, started to mess it up by taking the ones from the southern population to the northern population, and this started this whole problem. So I'm not sure whether, <laughs> whether there's too many lessons to be learned from that, but um, it's completely fascinating. Yeah, unintended consequences, certainly. Yeah. Ben Oldroyd is a professor of behavioral genetics at the University of Sydney in Australia. Thank you for your time today. You're more than welcome, Julie. Top of Mind is a production of BYU Radio. I'm Julie Rose. This is a curated episode of Top of Mind from the Archive. We've collected some of our favorite interviews from past years. Thanks for listening. I'm Julie Rose. The conversations in today's episode come from the Top of Mind archive. Have you missed birthday parties and family nights at the lanes? This next conversation just might give you a hankering for some strikes and spares or gutter balls if you bowl like I do. Ronald Hicklin Jr. is a former bowling ball designer. He worked for Ebonite for a long time. Now he has his own education and accessory company. It's called Creating the Difference. Ronald Hicklin Jr., welcome. Thanks for your time. Thank you for having me on. 
Uh, forgive my ignorance, but what's there to design with a bowling ball? Is it just the aesthetics, how it looks on the outside? Yeah, that's what you would think, right? Because the ball is just a round object. But you'd be surprised. There's actually an inside piece that's called a core. And they come in all different types of sizes and shapes and weights and densities and pieces. There's actually a lot to it. I actually have a degree in, in mechanical engineering, and that's what it took uh, to be able to design bowling balls. A mechanical engineering degree. So the, so the center is not just a spherical core like you'd find on the inside of a, like a golf ball or a baseball. So that's what's interesting. It actually is when you go to the bowling center and you grab one of those balls off the rack. But if you decide that you want to get a little more serious, when you see that competitive bowling on TV, those uh, inside pieces are definitely not spherical. Like what? What would be a common shape for a professional bowling ball's uh, core? Ah, I mean, they've got a lot of, they kind of name them kind of uh, funny names too. So like there's one that's really popular. It's called a gas mask and it looks kind of like a gas mask shape. Um, you can, um, if you can imagine like uh, uh, any kind of cylinder or a lot of times what, what companies will do is they'll actually put multiple pieces in the ball. So think about it. The bowling ball um, has to be 15 pounds or 16 pounds or 10 pounds or eight pounds, right? Yeah. But the actual size of the ball doesn't change. So then how do you make those weight changes? You've got to do it with interior pieces by making them either lighter or heavier to be able to get the bowling ball to the right weight that you want. And then you can begin to put little pieces on them in certain locations to help with the steering of the bowling ball. So, so it's not actually fully symmetrical, all the stuff inside. Like I would have thought that the ball would wobble a lot if you don't, you know, if it's like not, if all the inside stuff is not completely symmetrical. You're 100% right. Actually, bowling is one of the sports with the equipment where you actually want instability. Instability actually is a good thing in bowling. You know, when you see people or maybe you've seen people on TV, they throw the ball and it kind of goes out to the right, but then it hooks back to the left. Yes. I thought that was somehow with their fingers or the way they were releasing the ball. So the fingers and the rotation definitely have an impact on that. But that inside piece also helps to steer that ball from right to left as well. And that's legal? You can you can do that to a bowling ball. You can uh, you can make one that specifically hooks left or hooks right. Hooks more or hooks less. Absolutely. And there are rules. So like there are rules that govern the the numerics of what you can do on the inside of a bowling ball. So you can only make a bowling ball um, so dense in a specific area. Uh, You can there's there's very, very, very. Uh, distinct rules and what you can and can't do from a core design standpoint, but all of it's geared to try to give the bowler an advantage. So how much of, of a professional bowler's score is based on the ball versus the bowler's actual skill? So at, at the professional level, I mean, they're all really, really good at repeating shots. What you'll find is a bowling ball that's drilled right for the right environment, the right lane condition, that can give you a couple of extra strikes in a game. And that can be the difference between making the cut or missing the cut. So a professional bowler will will rent, will normally take about uh, 10 to 12 balls to one event. And they may go through all of them and they may drill up three or four more looking for that little extra advantage. What do you mean drill up? So all these balls, I mean, you can't throw them without any holes in them. So all these balls get holes put in them. And there are some markings on the ball that tell the guy who's going to put the holes where the core is. Okay, so so a bowler will come to a, a an event with a bunch of balls that he's never used, he or she has never used before. Don't even have the finger holes in them. So at the pro, at the professional level, they have the ability to do that. At the recreational level, no. Like everybody <laughs> right. that would go to a regular tournament or an amateur like myself, we would I would go to a tournament with my bowling balls already drilled, but I would go with eight to 10 bowling balls drilled all different ways so that I could have different amounts of hook and different types of hook, depending on what actually I'm bowling on. Oh, because where you put those three holes for your thumb and your two fingers on the ball will change the way the ball performs because it's not symmetrical on the inside. Absolutely. So, cause like it could, so you, maybe you want your fingers to the left of, something or to the right of something that's inside the ball, because that's going to change the way it spins or hooks. 
That's correct. And all the huh. balls are marked. Like they're actually physically marked on the surface of the ball so that the guy who's putting the holes in the ball, he can know exactly where the core is in the ball. Okay. And so when, so the guy who's putting the holes in the ball, does the, does he also know, like, if you put him here, you're going to get more of a hook this way. And if you put him over here, you're going to get more of a spin. Yes, that's correct. And we actually spend a lot of time educating people about that topic exactly, like how to do it, when to do it, where to do it, um, how deep the holes can go, because that matters. Yeah. Uh, and a lot of little things like that. So there's a whole lot, there's a whole science behind bowling ball drilling. We actually teach a class, a five-day <laughs> class on how to drill bowling balls. Wow. How, how, did, how did you even discover that this was a job, Ronald Hickland? So my father is a big-time bowler, and I would travel around with him across the country. And I got fortunate enough to meet a bowling ball designer at a very, very early age. And I was like, well, he, I was at this bowling center, and there was a big bowling tournament. And all these people kept coming up to this guy, asking him questions. And he was talking to all these people. And I was like, man, this guy must be like a rock star. So <laughs> let me go ask him, what does he do? So I asked him what he did. He told me he designed bowling balls. And I'm like, well, how do I get to do that? And he said, you know, well, you need to get a degree in engineering if you want to do, or chemical engineering, if you want to do the outside, which is called the cover stock, or mechanical engineering, if you want to do the inside, which is the core. So I was like, well, which one do you do? And he said, well, I do the core. And I thought this guy was really, really cool. So I was like, then I want to do the core when I grow up too. <laughs> what was so cool about him <laughs> that made you think, just that he had a lot of people fawning over him at the bowling alley? So there were a couple of things. He had this, he had this necklace and it had a medallion on it. And the medallion was for a bowling ball that the company that he designed it for gave him. Oh. And, he, and he said to me, he said, well, the company gave me this medallion when we sold 100,000 units. And because I was the designer, my royalty was five bucks a ball. Whoa. So I was like, all right, that's cool. And then he <laughs> said, he said, you know, I get to travel all over the, the world talking to people about bowling. And I'm like, well, that, that, that sounds cool to me too. So I'm always like, yeah, I think I, I, I want to do this when I grow. And I liked bowling. Like I already liked bowling. So for me, it was kind of like, well, this is a, an avenue that I could take potentially and then make it a career. So, yeah. so, so describe for us what your best-selling ball design was. So this is kind of funny. So the best-selling ball design I did, I did in 2003, and it is in a bowling ball that's called a Black Widow. So that core shape is, is kind of world known in bowling. And as a result, did you invent the core shape then that? Yes. Okay. Yeah. What you do is you get on a computer in a CAD program and you start, you know, designing out what it's supposed to be. And we have all these parameters to work with. And so we kind of know what we can and can't do. So we design it up. And then after you design it up, you take it over to, uh, to, to get a tool made so you can get some actual um, components that you can actually you know, make molds off of. And you take the molds, take it to testing and development. After you test it, then you decide what kind of um, cover stock you're gonna put on it, send it to, over to production. Hopefully they say they can make it and then you know, send it out to the world. But that shape I designed in 2003 and it's still in production, even though the company that I used to work for does not exist anymore. Oh, so do they license? So do you have like a patent or a trademark on or the company does on that does that that core design and anyone who wants to use it has to pay has to pay somebody? Yeah. So that's the difference between being an employee and being an owner. Right. So mm -hmm. as an employee, all of that intellectual property stayed with the company. Uh, and then when that company went out of business, those that somebody else came and bought those assets. I so see. all of that intellectual property went with them. But it is intellectual property then. So right. these core designs. And can you describe it for us? What does it look like, the Black Widow? Yeah. So this is the one that looks like a gas mask. If you think oh. about putting on a gas mask, that's exactly what this core shape looks like. So it's kind of oblong and there, but it's got like sort of a, a, a snout on it then on one side. Yeah, you know how you know how like a gas mask has like those two like those two pieces oh, that stick right. out. Right down below. Yeah. Right. Okay. Yeah, yeah. That's exactly what it looks like. Huh. And what's so great about it? Um, I think why people like it so much is because of the properties that it has, meaning that it's very user friendly. So if if I was to drill one and I drilled you one and we drilled our friends one, we all would kind of see a similar type performance that is desirable. So that's why I think that ball's been so mm -hmm. popular. And that shape, that shape's been in over, 
at least 80 different bowling balls, maybe even more than that. Hmm. Can you tell by looking at a ball if it's got your design on the inside of it? So I can, um, just because you know, I'm familiar with what I what, with what I did. Yeah. Um, you can tell from the outside, though. Like, does it have a special oh, no. a special marking that says, like, this has a Black Widow core on it or something? No, no, no. So this is kind of cool, too. So all of the manufacturers, they always put out the picture of the ball and then, like, a cutaway. So you can always see what it looks like. Uh, okay. So there's never any, like, secret, what kind of core does he have in that ball? Wow, that's amazing kind of a thing. Yeah, no, they don't. They don't that, that's one of the marketing features, right? Mm-hmm. So if it's got a different shape or unique shape, they want people to see it. They want to be able to talk about it. They want to be able to use that for marketing purposes. And why do you need a chemical engineering degree for the outside? So this one's going to maybe blow your mind a little bit. So on the lane, there's oil. And the oil helps the ball to slide down the lane. And it's actually there as a, protect, as a protecting mechanism as well. But what's cool about it is in a performance bowling ball, there's actually these little bitty holes in it. And the holes are designed to suck the oil off the lane into the ball. And you say, well, why would you want to do that? Well, the oil decreases the friction and the ability to set that oil up increases the friction. And in order to get that hook motion that that's to the right and it comes back, you need friction. So the more friction you can create, the more of that hooking motion you can create. That's why a lot of these guys that you see on TV, they're all using typically performance balls and they have a really, really big hooking motion and a really aggressive core and and they and they know how to throw the ball properly. So you put all that together and you get this really aggressive performance. Huh. Um, how do I choose a ball at the bowling ball, bowling lanes that will work, that will be like, will overcome the fact that I'm not a good bowler? So great question. So what I would tell you is the first thing you want to do is get a bowling ball that's not too heavy and that your fingers and thumb can go all the way in. A lot of times people will go for a ball that's either too light or a bowling ball that they can't get their fingers all the way into that second knuckle. So, you know, um, you look at your hand and you've got that first crease by your fingertip and then you have the second crease. You want to be able to get your fingers all the way into that second crease and your thumb all the way in the bowl. Okay. That's, a, that's the first step. And then this part's a little bit trial and error. You, you, you want to start out with a bowling ball that you think is good, but if you can bowl two or three games and not get tired, that's the right weight. If you can't, then you need to go one pound lighter or two pounds lighter. All right, then. We've got about a minute left, and I'd love to hear you just summarize for us what the STEM education component of your company does. So we use STEM, science, technology, engineering, and math as a way to help people understand complex topics using bowling. That's what we do with it. At the end of the day, there's a lot of math and education built into designing bowling balls as well as designing cover stocks. And we use um, the bowling ball, which is a familiar piece of equipment, to demonstrate some of that. Real quick example, uh, eight-pound ball will float in water, whereas a 15-pound ball won't float in water. Really? The eight... eight, I wow! I never would have thought eight pounds is still pretty heavy, but it'll float. It's all a density equation. Ah, uh, right. So you go into schools then, or you do? Uh... Yes, we do schools. We've done colleges. Um, we've had people come to our building to get educated on these kind of things. But absolutely, we're all about trying to educate people in general. I think you know I was fortunate enough to meet a bull and ball designer, so I think it's important to be able to help people become more educated just in general about STEM. We just happen to use bowling as our tool to do it. Ronald Hicklin Jr. designed bowling balls for Ebonite for many years. He's currently CEO of Creating the Difference. It's a coaching firm with a side mission to promote STEM education through bowling, and they also sell bowling accessories. Thanks a lot for your time today, Mr. Hicklin. What an interesting job you've had. Thank you for having me on. I appreciate it. Top of Mind is a production of BYU Radio. I'm Julie Rose. This is Top of Mind. I'm Julie Rose. Today we've collected some of our favorite interviews from past years. Thanks for listening. And I'm Ciara Hewlett. Katie Kwan used to be a professional dancer, but now that she's getting a PhD in mechanical engineering from Stanford University, she's dancing with a new partner. 
robots. Katie's research focuses on designing robots to move in a way that's less threatening for humans. It's an emerging field called choreo robotics. And Katie joins me on the line now. Thank you so much for your time. Hey, Sierra. You've written about an experience with your dad being in the hospital and how that inspired the work that you do now. Could you tell us what happened? A number of years ago, I was in ballet class and I got a phone call that my dad, who was in his 60s at the time, had experienced a stroke. It was a really scary moment for me. And when I went to visit him in the hospital, he was surrounded by a massive cave of machines, really. And he was completely alienated, scared, obviously, not only by the experience that he was having physically, but by the experience, quite honestly, theatrically of being surrounded by all of these foreign objects and machines. They were beeping, making noise, you know, flashing different lights and colors. And I understood obviously that everyone in that room, all of the medical staff and everyone who had designed these devices was doing so with the utmost care to make people like my dad safe and healthy. But it felt like those devices were lacking some theatrical awareness of how humans engage and feel when they're around technology. And it was the first, one of the first instances that provoked my internal questioning about how artists and people with backgrounds in choreography, theater, and um, art making, you know, painting could bring their backgrounds sort of to the design, particularly of these seemingly autonomous machines. How, how did your dad feel in that moment being surrounded by those machines? I know for sure he was scared. He felt quite uncertain, I think, was a little confused. <laughs> Didn't quite understand what they were supposed to be doing, I think is the biggest component. They weren't, we use a word legibility. They weren't ex especially legible to him. So per should he have been worried when one of them made more beeping noises? Should he have been less worried? I think it was the legibility piece. They were obviously very legible to the doctors and nurses that were taking care of him, but they weren't legible to him. And I think that's what created a lot of his fear. And you found that this isn't a fear that just your dad has. And that's part, partly why you've, you've picked up this work, right? Absolutely. There are a variety of applications you know, kind of broadly in elder care, both in hospital settings and home settings, um, where different people like my dad would really benefit from access and usage of different kinds of technologies, um, particularly robots. And one of the one of the reasons, not only because of their technical potential right now, but I think one of the reasons that it will be hard for robots to fill some of those needs is, is if they're not easy and comprehensible to the people who are using them. So it's not just my dad who's experiencing that fear, um, but he's really representative of, I think, a big generation of people who could really benefit from robots and it's kind of up to us as roboticists to ensure that the robots that we try to introduce into those environments don't make other people feel afraid. And not just older people, but just regular people as well. I mean, I think a lot of us are a little apprehensive <laughs> when it comes to robots, you know, and not the too distant future. They probably will be entering our homes and, you know, doing more things for us. And that's a little, a little intimidating, a little scary. <laughs> Absolutely. There's Chapman University, there's a, they call it the fear study, but there's a fear study that comes out every year about sort of people's primary fears. And I think in the 2017 version of that study, um, people were quoted as listing robots and robots taking their jobs, particularly among their sort of top 10 or 20 fears, um, which is significant because there are as, as we all know, living in the world, there are a lot of things that you could be afraid of. And so having one of your top ranking fears be robots is a little, it's upsetting because I think it, it creates a little bit of a barrier between what are these incredible things that robots could be doing and people feeling accepted and empowered around these robots. And you said after that experience with your dad, you thought, I'm a dancer. I have this background in art and everything. And, and you think that people in your world and in theater could really do something here. Why, why do robots need 
the touch of a of a dancer? Sure. So robots are embodied. They move through three-dimensional space. This is so different than a movie that you see on your on your screen. It's so different than the sort of pen to paper. They're embodied. They move through space. And so when you think about people who have expertise in body, space, and time, you think, for me, the initial occupation that comes to mind is choreographer. Um, it's really choreographers who are very good at putting meaning inside of context, sequencing it together, and making sure that that, me that movement is meaningful to the person who's observing it. Um, so I think that's what I would uh, underscore is it, it sort of seemed like a logical similarity between the role of roboticists generating movement for robots and the role of choreographers generating movement for dancers. So you think that if you can make a robot move different differently from a dancer's perspective, a choreographer's perspective, that, that would help people feel more comfortable around robots and feel more empowered around them? Well, movement is one of the primary ways that we perceive all new entities. So there's a couple different studies that demonstrate, even if you're looking at an impoverished representation, so whether it's a shape or a upper body only visualization of a human being, humans uh, tend to ascribe immediately mo emotion and meaning to that impoverished shape or representation. So movement in general for humans is wildly impactful. It's extremely meaningful. And it's one of the first things that we notice, right? Because our, our old instincts about predator versus prey, fight or flight, um, helps us sort of uh, evaluate really quickly whether or not something that we're encountering is safe. Um, is safe, is going to harm me, is clear. And so I think the importance of movement when it comes to robots, I mean, it cannot be overstated. Could you give an example of um, how a robot might move that would make someone uncomfortable or just doesn't work super well and how you could change that, how what you would do differently to, to make that robot show or put off different vibes, I guess. <laughs> sure. So there is some interesting research from a professor named Wendy Jew. She's at Cornell Tech and she did some work when she was at Stanford about these aren't exactly robots, but autonomous vehicles and cars and sort of how the, when they accelerate and decelerate has quite a bit of meaning to a pedestrian or a person that's in a different car. Um, so that would be one way that you could really change how robots might seem scary or not scary. You can imagine having, she also did some work with robotic trash cans and robotic furniture. Um, you could imagine something similar for let's say a robot that's meant to open a door. If the robot, accelerates super quickly and moves really fast towards that door, um, it might scare you a little bit. You know, why is the robot moving to the door so quickly? Should we be nervous? Is there something happening behind that door that I don't know about that the robot does know about? Um, so even something as simple as acceleration and the, um, the, the sequences of acceleration can really dictate how scary or not scary the robot is because these are the kinds of cues that we pick up on, right? If I was sitting across from you at a restaurant and you snatched a glass off of the table, I would become a little bit concerned. You know, is she thinking I'm going to steal this from her? <laughs> is she feeling threatened by me? Am I mad? Um, so, yeah, are you mad, right? It's really contextual. And then the second thing that the example that I'll mention about kind of robot motion in particular is robots off quite often in factories do very repetitive tasks. Um, and so they don't need to, I would say, be displaced or they don't need to move that far, right? So it depends on the task that they're doing, but I can take welding as an example that it's something that happens in a very particular range of movement and it happens over and over. So the robot isn't doing these big broad sweeping motions. However, when we think about robots in the real world that may have to do a couple different kinds of motions, whether you know it's not only welding, let's say that the robot needs to open the door and it needs to turn the light on. Um, I think a second variable that people become attuned to and really pick up on is just distance and transition in general. So if I'm switching between opening this door and turning off this light, and in the meantime, I, meaning me as a robot, uh, in the meantime, I, I need to do a big turn in between, or I have to sweep my arm around the back, or I have to peek my whole head around. You know, it's not 
something that we as humans are really used to seeing. I'm not used to seeing you, Ciara, turn, open the door, do five leaps, do a big turn, and then turn the light on. Um, like that would be meaningful to me. So, so I think acceleration and distance are maybe two variables that people can look at in terms of how is this motion being performed and what does it convey? Do you think there needs to be some level though of robots seeming inhuman that that if you make them move too much like humans that you know it could it could break down the distinction between us and maybe freak us out a little bit that oh this robot is a little too human like you know and that would make us uneasy there's a fair bit of examination about this particularly this concept called the uncanny valley where if something becomes too human-like, it starts to seem scary or uncanny in some way and freaks people out and creates uh, discomfort. I think that's useful as a general paradigm, but of course, everything within the scale of humanness is wildly subjective. So I think there could be a threshold at which you know, people start to feel some discomfort, but you could argue that that's the case for any novel thing in their lives. Mm. Um, maybe you have a new uh, kitchen cleaning device that looks a little bit too much like a snake and <laughs> it's sort of creeping you out because it's a little too close to being a snake. Um, that's a really hard distinction to draw. So I, I also think given where robots are now, um, so many simple tasks are still really hard. And so I think I'm a little less concerned about robots being too good when it comes to a human similitude. And I'm a little more concerned about how can we get some of these very basic tasks to really land and land consistently, regardless of whatever environment robots are in. I'm speaking with Katie Kwan. She's getting a PhD in mechanical engineering at Stanford University, and she is a dancer. So she's using that knowledge to help teach robots how to move differently. Katie, you've also been teaching robots how to dance. Why? <laughs> what does that have to do with all the other work that we've been talking about that, that you do? Mm -hmm. Dance is a fundamental part of what it means to be human. There are a number of interesting studies about evidence that almost every early human society shows evidence of dancing, of performing rhythmic motion together in large groups. And there's some theories that humans used to dance in order to create intersocial bonds between them, um, in order to make sense of the world, in order to tell stories. You know, dance serves so many purposes in our lives. And there's a, another concept in neuroscience called entrainment, which is your body's ability to match you know, rhythms and beats, particularly downbeats, to movement and dance. And that's something that humans are fairly unique at doing. There are a couple of different species that can do this. Um, I think dolphins maybe is one and birds also, but this pairing of um, sound, particularly rhythm and movement. So I think the first thing that I would say is that dance is really fundamental to what it means to be human. And it is represented in almost every society kind of since the earliest origins of human beings. So when it comes to making sense of new objects, how do we make sense of new objects? Well, we, we talk to them, we hand them back and forth, we engage with them really physically. I mean, it's, it, if, you know, for example, I think about the first time I learned to hold a pencil um, and that was a very uh, movement-based physical visceral experience. I didn't sort of sit and stare at it. I had to pick it up and push it onto paper and erase things and move it around. And so when I think about why robots should dance, part of it is to have this broader macro meaning of how do we make sense of these new tools in our lives? Well, dance is one way that we've made sense of many different things in our lives. Um, and so it, it has a very clear translation as to why we would dance with robots. And then the second possibly more practical and functional reason is that to get something to perform is really hard. Uh, you have to, it needs to be reliable, predictable, you have to rehearse with it. Um, and so to put a robot in a performative context where it needs to be a performer in front of other people um, really stretches some of the bounds of what that robot can do. It, it forces 
me as a choreographer to explore all of the different movements that the robot is capable of and really down select from those movements the same way that dancers spend 15 or 20 years exploring all of the different vocabulary inside of ballet or flamenco. Um, so, and then having to put that in a context where it's reliable enough that people can see it and it won't break every couple of seconds um, really stretches some of my own like software development capabilities and, and keeping things kind of like technically robust. It really pushes the technical limitations of the entity itself. And your videos dancing with robots are pretty interesting. Um, there's one where the robot's holding a sheet and then and moving it around in choreographed ways and then you're dancing under it. And it's it's pretty cool. Like it, it definitely makes you think about robots differently for sure. Thank you. That piece was, yeah, it was really symbolic for me of how that was from one of the well, that was the first piece I ever made, really, dancing with robots when I was an artist in residence at the Rad Lab um, at the University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign at the time, which is now based in Philadelphia. And I was having this totally transformational experience where I felt like I could imbue myself into these machines and, and see myself reflected in them. And I wanted that to become quite literal. And so we had a sheet, I had a sheet that was placed between the, uh, the robot and myself. And it was sort of the porousness of that sheet was meant to symbolize the porousness that I felt between myself and these robots. Katie Kwan is a PhD candidate in mechanical engineering at Stanford University and a dancer and an artist. Thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. So great to speak with you, Ciara, and really intriguing to hear your thoughts even. And my my goal is that there will be many more robots in the world and they'll be imbued with dance knowledge. So I hope to see that future come about and I believe it will be a positive one. I'm Ciara Hewlett. This is Top of Mind. Top of Mind is a production of BYU Radio. Cleon Wall, Ciara Hewlett, and Kyle Raymond produced the show. Find more episodes on the free BYU Radio app. And there is a lot to discover. We've been on the air every weekday since the start of 2015. You'd have to listen nonstop for five months to hear all the conversations we've had on Top of Mind. And there's a lot of great stuff there, too. So episodes like the one you've heard today are a selection of the very best from our vast archive. I hope we've whetted your appetite for more in-depth conversations to come here on Top of Mind. We would love to know what you think of the show. Email us, topofmind at byu.edu. I'm Julie Rose. We'll talk soon.